to the sermon podcast of Trinity Church in Carryville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, please visit our website, trinity901.com. Uh, most of you know I'm a big baseball fan. So I grew up watching the current World Series champion Atlanta Braves nearly every night at home with my parents. That's all that was ever on the TV. And I'm unashamedly trying my hardest to brainwash, I mean to encourage my children to be Braves fans as well. We try to have games on as much as possible in our house. And over the last couple weeks, there's been another baseball video from social media that's gotten replayed just about daily in my house. Let me describe it to you, you might have seen it. So it takes place at a youth baseball game. The pitcher throws the ball and it nearly hits the batter who quickly jumps out of the way. And then all of a sudden the camera zooms in on the runner who is on second base. And with anger and disgust in his eyes, he yells out at the batter, let it hit you. Now, remember, these kids can't be more than 11 or 12 years old. The outcome of this particular game does not matter to anyone else on the planet other than to the kids playing and maybe some of their parents. But we can see here from a very early age that we're taught in America that winning is the most important thing. The more base runners you have from you getting a hit or you being hit, means you're more likely to score and more likely to win. So even if you're not actually hit with the ball, but it looks like you were hit with the ball, you should definitely let it hit you and trot on down to first base. But I want to contrast that video of the youth in America playing baseball with another video that I saw recently. It takes place in India. And in India, the game of cricket is king. They call it the gentleman's game. And if you've never seen cricket, all that you need to know is that it's similar to baseball. There's a pitcher, there's a batter, there are fielders that are trying to get the batter out. And in a recent game this year in the Indian Premier League, which is one of the largest and most prestigious cricket leagues in the world, something unimaginable happened for American sports fans. On a ball hit in play, a fielder runs, makes a diving effort to catch the ball, and after hitting the ground, he raises up the ball in the air. He's caught it, the batter is out, which is a huge deal in cricket. But as play goes on, he puts his hand down and immediately starts shaking his head, and he looks at the umpires and he draws a small box, meaning that they should go and review the play because the fielder doesn't think that he caught the ball before it hit the ground. So this should not be an out. Can you believe this guy? Like, Doesn't he love his team? Doesn't he want to win? What is he doing? So the umpires go to review and they rule that it was not a catch. And the fielder was right. He did not catch the ball. Does this ever happen in American sports? Have you ever seen a wide receiver get up after making a leaping grab for a football and tell the officials that he did not catch the ball or that his feet were actually out of bounds? I've never, never seen this happen. But this type of behavior 
is celebrated in cricket. It's one of the most prestigious awards in this league. It's called the Fair Play Award. It's given out to a team after their major tournament and after the end of the year. Teams earn points every game for playing, get this, with the right spirit of the game, for respecting the laws of the game, and for showing respect towards the umpires. And this is the most coveted award in this league, a gentleman's game indeed, right? But in America, we more often than not play by a different motto called, if you're not cheating, then you're not trying. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Win at all costs, no matter what. But there's a better way to play the game. So in today's text in Mark, we get the same sort of comparison. Some of the people in this text take the same win-at-all-costs strategy. They go along with the way that things have always been done. They see the prize that awaits for them if they win, and they reach out and they take it. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. But there's one person who offers a different way, a better way. But as is typical with Jesus, it doesn't look quite like you would expect. So in Mark chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 43. And because this is the word of God to us, would you stand with me as we read this out of reverence and respect for him? Mark 14, starting in verse 43. It says, And immediately while he, Jesus, was still speaking... Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all, his disciples, left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks indeed. Would you please be seated? So there are three points that I want to use to guide our walk through this very strange passage this morning. Three points. Number one, we have another garden. Another garden. Number two, another betrayer. Another betrayer. And then number three, a better Adam. So we have another garden, another betrayer, and a better Adam. Let's start in the garden. So just prior to today's section in Mark, Jesus has retreated to this garden with his disciples to pray. And as is typical, the disciples fail. They fail to stay alert or even to stay awake. 
They failed to keep watch and pray alongside Jesus as he asked. But Jesus is alert. Jesus is praying to the Father in his moment of great trouble and anguish on earth. Jesus goes to the Father to pray and to listen. And after returning to his disciples, our text for this morning picks up. It's in this garden where Jesus is, the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus has come to start the climax of his earthly mission. Jesus has been at work in this region of the world for three years, announcing to anyone who would listen that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom has arrived. He's faced down direct temptation and testing from the Satan. He's healed the lame. He's given sight to the blind. He's announced good news to those who are poor, to those who are outcasts, to those who don't belong. And it's in this garden where Jesus' disciples again have another choice. They can trust and follow the one whom they themselves have called the Christ, the one who they have seen have power over creation when he calmed the wind and the waves, the one who told them that he is the resurrection and the life, the one who has commanded that they all take up their own cross and follow him. Are they going to look to him, to Jesus, or are they going to do what is right in their own eyes? Are they going to take care of themselves first and to take action themselves without looking to the Heavenly Father or to Jesus for any guidance. So I want to pair this garden in Mark with another garden, the very first garden, the Garden of Eden in Genesis. And in Eden, in this garden, another event that would change the world for all humanity takes place in a garden and I don't think this is coincidental. The setting here in Mark is surely meant to make us recall that first garden and those first choices of Adam and Eve. So here we are in our text together. We have humanity and we have God in the flesh, Jesus, together in a garden. And as it goes in the first garden, humanity again faces a test. So we're in another garden but in this garden, we have, point two, another deceiver. There's another deceiver in this garden. So back in Genesis, in the Genesis garden, humanity encounters a mysterious creature, the serpent, and here's how that interaction goes. So the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpents, no, we may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree and its fruit in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowing good and evil. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate 
And this is a repeated pattern all throughout the Bible. Humans see, they desire, and they take with no regard for what God has to say. Behind Adam and Eve's actions here is this core belief that God does not have my best interest at heart. If I want something in my life, something that will be good for me, something that will be good for my family, then I need to take it. Now, remember, Adam and Eve are living in a garden paradise that they did not plant. They are eating food from trees that they did not cultivate. The very air that they are breathing inside of their lungs was given to them by God when he breathed life into them after making them from dust. Every good and perfect gift that they have has been given to them from the Father. But still, they doubt that God will continue to give them what they need when it is good for them. Eve sees the fruit, she desires it, and she takes it for herself. So back to our garden in Mark. In our garden in Mark, we encounter another deceiver, but the same lie. It's another deceiver, but it's the same lie. Judas, one of the twelve, one of the people that followed Jesus more closely than anyone else, who sat and listened to his teaching, he saw Jesus' miracles, he ate at the table with Jesus, has betrayed him and all of the other disciples. He brings an armed militia from the chief priest to arrest Jesus. It's not difficult to see how Judas is doing what is right in his own eyes, seeing an opportunity and taking money for his efforts. But Judas isn't the only disciple who is doing this. Look back at verse 47. Verse 47 says, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that this is Peter. And when Peter is doing this, he is failing the same test that Adam and Eve did. Peter is failing the test. Now, wait, wait, wait. wait. How is Peter failing the test. He's the only one who has the guts to actually fight for Jesus. Peter is the only one putting his money where his mouth is. He's the only one even trying to protect Jesus from this mob of people. But that's just the problem. That's the point. Peter is failing the test because he is doing that. Peter's doing what is right in his own eyes. Jesus has repeatedly told them that he will be taken, that he will suffer, that he will die, and Peter refuses to accept this as a good gift from God. Peter refuses to believe that God has his own best interests at heart. Peter refuses to believe that God has bigger plans than what is happening at that moment. So Peter takes matters into his own hands to protect Jesus. And when he takes matters into his own hands, he's taking matters out of God's hands. 
When Peter takes matters into his own hands, he's taking all the matters out of God's hands. And so he fails the test. And we do this as well. Every time that we take matters into our own hands, we fail the test right alongside Peter over and over again. There's a small part of your brain deep inside your head. It's called your amygdala. And when your amygdala senses danger from all around you, it floods your brain with hormones. It elicits either a fight or flight response. So either you fight your way out of the danger or you run away from the danger. So Peter has the fight response. He takes a sword to fight through the danger. But Jesus shows that he has no intentions of fighting against this militia that has come to arrest him, which would be against the will of his father. And every other disciple then takes the flight response. They all run away and leave Jesus. They believe that there is no hope in him. There is no hope for them anymore. And they fail to trust. They fail the test over again. So we're in another garden with another deceiver, but point number three, we have a better Adam in this garden. Number three, we have a better Adam. Lastly, there is one in this garden who does not fail the test. There is one who sees the chaos surrounding him, who sees the utter destruction that awaits him, who sees all of those who were with him leave and desert him at his moment of greatest trouble. He sees the power of the world coming to crush him. And when he sees his death surrounding him, his desire is still to do the will of the Father. He doesn't take things into his own hands. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this garden, Jesus doesn't take his life into his own hands. He gives his life. He gives his life first to the Father in heaven because he knows that the Father has his best interests at heart. He knows that the Father has a great good that he is working through this trial, through this difficult, impossible, ugly situation. But he also gives his life for Peter and for all of the other disciples who have run away, who have failed the test. Jesus gives his life for them. And here's the good news this morning, Trinity. Hear this from 1 Corinthians. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All will be made alive who are in Christ. All will be made alive because Jesus did not take his life into his own hands. He came to give his life in this garden. So Trinity, we are all like Adam, like Peter, like every other disciple in our text. We all fail the test. We all fail to truly believe 
that God has our best interest at heart. We all believe in some time or in some way that we are going to win the game if we make it happen. We need to take matters into our own hands, and we need to make it happen. But when we do that, we end up just like Adam and Eve, just like the young man at the end of our text today in Mark. We end up in a garden, naked, ashamed, running away, and hiding from God. And that's what it looks like to take our life into our own hands. Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God has come. But never forget the upside-down nature of this kingdom. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The one who is the greatest of all is the servant of all. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. So Trinity, this morning is a reality check. So I don't know what it is that you're holding on to, what it is that you're trying everything in your power to fix and to make right. I don't know what you're fighting against or running away from, but I do know that Jesus offers a better way to play the game. So stop thinking that God doesn't have your best interests at heart. Remember all the ways that he's been faithful in the past. Stop trying to earn your status in the kingdom of God. For those of you who are in the family of God, you are a son and daughter of the king. Remember who you are. When the Father looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees Jesus, the one who passed the test perfectly. He sees the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. So we have this table set before us this morning. And as we close, I want you to be reminded of this from Isaiah. Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. So Trinity, consider that an invitation this morning to come to Jesus. You pray with me. Father in heaven, may we never forget that we come into a right relationship with you through the work of Jesus and through nothing that we bring ourselves All that we have is a gift from you, including this table and meal set before us. It's full of richness that satisfies. So God, we give you praise for this salvation that you have brought to us. May we always be willing to lay down our own selfish desires and our own lives and to cling tightly not to what we want, but to the cross of Christ. 
the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.